Okay. Hi, my name's Graham Daniels. I am a psychotherapist uh, from Northern California. It's the second in a video, video, audio series called Getting Real About Sex Addiction. The uh, first uh, podcast was a 10-minute intro to what this is going to be about, sex addiction and psychoanalysis, based upon a book that I co-authored with a colleague and friend, Joe Farley, MFT. I'm also an MFT, that's a marriage family therapist. I'm also a student of uh, psychoanalysis, and we wrote a book together called Getting Real About Sex Addiction, A Psychodynamic Approach to Treatment, published through Roman and Littlefield. The term psychodynamic is an umbrella term. It um, coined in the 1950s, pertains to a range of theories under the psychoanalytic uh, umbrella. So we're going to be talking about all things pertaining to sex addiction, particularly from a psychoanalytic or psychodynamic, use those terms more or less interchangeably uh, throughout this podcast series. Uh, Sex addiction, a term not strictly speaking from the psychoanalytic tradition, was coined uh, something like 40 years ago. It's maybe a little bit older. It's a term most associated in academic or professional circles with a man by the name of Dr. Patrick Carnes, who more or less is responsible for proselytizing um, the term sex addiction since the, the 1980s through books he wrote. first major one was called Out of the Shadows. A second one was called Don't Call It Love, published in the early uh, 1990s. So, um, I'm going to be talking about all things pertaining to that and also uh, pertaining to psychoanalysis. So, I'm going to start off this, this first full pedantic or you know, lecture series uh, with some basics about uh, the history of the sex addiction assessment label. Uh, it's an assessment label, not a diagnosis. The reason for that is because... A sex addiction is not a condition uh, still recognized by the American Psychiatric Association and their Diagnostic Standards Manuals, which were published every decade or so, the last one being in 2013. There was, however, a category of diagnosis proposed that more or less represented sex addiction. It was called uh, hypersexual disorder. And there are assessment tools that are based upon more or less uh, that research that went into that. Um, The hypersexual disorder um, diagnosis proposed again uh, for the 2013 manual uh, featured criteria like repetitive urges, fantasies, behaviors, uh, all in response to stressful events or dysphoric mood states. Now, dysphoric meaning uncomfortable, distressful mood states. That's that's relevant here to this series because that is a uh, very much influenced by a psychoanalytic psychoanalytic idea uh, that addictive behaviors, habits are a response, a defense against uncomfortable mood states. And that's not unique to psychoanalysis, but the ideas uh, that are um, presented um, about sex addiction and other addictive behaviors are derived from that analytic uh, idea. 
Now, the World Health Organization has a diagnostic category designated as compulsive sexual behavior, or CSBD, as part of their ICD-11 system. There, the problem is characterized as a persistent pattern uh, of failure to control intense, repetitive sexual urges leading to repetitive uh, sexual behavior. Key word in their definition, the use of the word control, I think is commonplace for people to think of loss of control as um, in Latin you'd call it the sine qua non, the um, pr premier signifier of an addictive pattern. Now, as I suggested uh, a few moments ago, the most probably pr prominent professional figure to promote the idea of sex addiction is Dr. Patrick Carnes, author of books Out of the Shadows and Don't Call It Love. The first Out of the Shadows was more or less a series of testimonials from uh, suffering sex addicts. Uh, Don't Call It Love was probably the more comprehensive uh, theoretical and, uh, and treatment, early treatment guide published in the early 90s. Uh, Carnes characterized a sex addict as one who believes that sex is his or her most important need, uh, is beset with certain uh, core beliefs such as not feeling worthwhile, inadequacy, and uses sex to avoid painful, empty feelings. Again, a very prominent idea, uh, and again, derivative of psychoanalytic thought and, and very um, popular um, uh, today as, as an idea within the sex addiction uh, treatment field. Uh, Carnes further asserts, asserted that uh, sexual behavior that is secretive is likely addictive. So it's very prominent, particularly in sex addiction treatment circles, to consider secrecy, lying, to be a, um, not a signature, but a prominent feature of um, of an addictive pattern. This is actually something of a controversial uh, idea because it overlooks um, you know, certain extenuating circumstances, I suppose you consider, depending on uh, you know, social or cultural context. Um, is a person addictive because they keep something secret? Um, what if somebody has good reasons to keep behavior secret? What brings to mind is say, members of the gay community who for many years uh, will, were closeted because of the external problem that is antipathy towards their orientation or what is sometimes called homophobia. Would we uh, pathologize their keeping secret when, uh, in retrospect, we might have thought that uh, a healthy, adaptive behavior, in a sense, uh, to an external problem. Anyway, again, secrecy is, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's not in and of itself um, criteria for an addictive pattern is part of the point here. And be the first of many, uh, say, debatable points under the heading of, of sex addiction that uh, this podcast and others will get into. Now, a lot of the ideas are theoretical, ph philosophical, uh, in, inflected with you know social politics of one kind or another, that the field is not without uh, scientific uh, evidence to support ideas, though there's very little that is definitive that say 
you know, evidences or proves the condition of sex addiction. But there is some prominent neuroscience. A Dr. Valerie Voon, for example, is known for having headed research in the last decade, roughly, uh, finding that male subjects diagnosed with CSB, again, that's compulsive sexual behavior as it designated by the WHO, were more activated than control subjects in areas of the brain linked with processing of reward and emotion. And this finding is similar to that uh, made with respect to um, substance dependence, drug users, and so on. Um, so this and is, is again, one of many areas of, of debate, controversy. But um, speaking of ideas that are, or theorists that are either controversial or perceived as outdated, I'm going to make some also, also some introductory remarks about Sigmund Freud, uh, the founder of modern psychology, the founder of psychoanalysis, certainly, and uh, still perhaps probably the most famous figure in uh, modern psychology, the only figure, well, not the only, but one of only a few names in modern psychology that you'd say is uh, a household name. Um, what would Sigmund Freud have thought of the idea of sex addiction as, as, as coined in the last generation? In some ways, you, you know, he might, we, we might think that the arrival of the term is, is overdue. Um, but Freud, perhaps, and I wrote in the book, that I think he will have thought the term uh, redundant, having uh, made reference to, written about, and spoken about uh, a number of behaviors which he thought were problem sexual behaviors. And in his era, they would have been dubbed perversions, but also problematic because they were habitual, uh, repetitive, as we tend to think addictive things are. But I'm talking about the range of behaviors that are still uh, you know, thought of as falling under the umbrella of sex addiction, behaviors like voyeurism, although we might think of porn addiction more commonly today, uh, exhibitionism, which uh, denotes today a, a, a legal, an illegal behavior, but it might also pertain to uh, promiscuity, uh, not necessarily polyamory, that's a different thing, but uh, other perversions like fetishism, masochism, fetishism, the um, displacing of sexuality into uh, objects that have carry uh, unconscious associations uh, with sexuality and masochism an important idea uh, as it pertains to the transforming of that which is um, painful into something pleasurable again think of that criteria under the uh, you know sex addiction proposed diagnosis the uh, defense against dysphoric or uncomfortable mood states. Well, how do we assess um, problems? And how do we begin to talk about uh, psychoanalysis? Uh, how do we assess, how do we begin to talk about sex addiction? Uh, psychoanalysis in itself is probably the most difficult model orientation within modern psychology to talk about. It's a bit, I think of it as a bit like Fight Club, you know, when the first rule of Fight Club is you don't talk about Fight Club. Well, psychoanalysis is, it's not forbidden to talk about it, but it is difficult to uh, speak of, difficult to convey its essence, its meaning, its method to uh, general public. In a lot of treatment for uh, mental health conditions, 
if you were a consumer of psychotherapy or mental health care, you might find if you entered a psychiatrist or psychotherapist's office and you presented with a problem, say like sex addiction, you might be subject to a battery of uh, psychological or psychiatric tests. And in sex addiction, there are tests. I mean, notable recent one, why one I've even used is something called the HB19, 19 deep questionnaire, HB um, indicating hypersexual behavior. And it might ask questions like what is you know represented in the proposed diagnosis. Have you ever used sex to, um, to, 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 to deal with or to avoid uncomfortable uh, feelings? Now, one of the critiques that uh, you know, psychoanalysts make of psychological testing that calls for self-report answers like these is that it presupposes that the subject is conscious of their, not only their behaviors, but their feeling states. Because the question asks to link behavior to feeling states. And that's something that we think addicts do, but aren't necessarily aware of, of doing. So, therefore, it's difficult to uh, recollect and report on, at least, uh, accurately. And I think one of the first, and in psychoanalytic circles, it's sometimes referred to as a shibboleth, uh, which is a Hebrew word meaning custom. And one of the first shibboleths of psychoanalysis is that we, meaning in psychoanalysis, we observe what is unknown by the patient. This is a, a, almost a signature idea. We observe the unknown. Instead of doing what is commonplace and commonly experienced in psychotherapy, supportive psychotherapy, which is to uh, observe what is known or close to being known. In, in psychoanalysis, we interpret, we go for the unknown. In psychotherapy, the tendency is to uh, validate or clarify, uh, to articulate that which is either already conscious or close to being so. So it's an important difference. Um, in sex addiction treatment, now how episodes typically begin, they are variable, but uh, a commonplace one is because of an impetus, a discovery. That's actually a conceptual term in uh, sex addiction treatment circles. The uh, partner, the, sorry, the subject of treatment, the patient, especially if male, is discovered. They are caught, if you like, and they present for treatment sometimes with, you know, already presenting with a self-diagnosis, a self-assessment of sex addict. Please help me, doc. I've done all these things. I've been caught. I'm a sex addict. What can I do? And the temptation is to use tests to confirm or, or dispel this. Again, uh, psychiatric battery of tests. In psychoanalysis, it's not what we do, and in part because of a second major um, custom, or not shibboleth, but observation, and was first made by Sigmund Freud, that the patient resists treatment. The, the patient resists the cure. It's a unique aspect of, of mental health care. Not unique, but close to being unique. And a remarkable observation that was made by um, Sigmund Freud, and it plays out in what, in the patient-doctor relationship, what he termed uh, transference. 
Now, he didn't mean necessarily that patients lie, but he did mean that patients don't readily uh, reveal or even remember. And so the idea is that we get to the truth in psychoanalysis of what happened, and in particular why things happen, over time and through the nature of uh, the relationship with the provider that has to go through numerous tests and barriers, some of which the patient is aware of and many which the patient is not aware of, aware of the resistances to treatment, resistances to a cure, so to speak. And this is why psychoanalysis is the slowest method of mental health care. And it, you know, would typically declare so with, you know, little a a apology or excuse making because they're saying, what we're saying in psychoanalysis, it's we're, the, we're providing the most in-depth um, answers, uh, possibly solutions to problems. But this is also one of the reasons why psychoanalysis is not so popular in the treatment of certainly chemical dependency and true also of sex addiction because the problem is deemed to be urgent, sometimes even life-threatening. Sex addiction isn't often life-threatening, but it is deemed urgent for well, a plethora of reasons. So other models of, of care, probably most notable is uh, that which does make use of, you know, psychological testing and um, questionnaires is a model called cognitive behavioral therapy. Cognitive referring more or less to conscious, um, you know, intellectual activity. And other methods that are promoted in short-term uh, treatment programs, they are faster at, you know, they're faster at what, you might ask? At, at stopping behavior? Uh, stopping the problematic behaviors that fall under the heading of sex addiction or perversions, as they might once have been called. Well, maybe, um, having worked in the field, as I suggested in the first video, for you know many years, um, I'm inclined to think, particularly when people first present for treatment, that, and particularly in the aftermath of being caught uh, by you know a loved one, that a placebo effect. Um, happens initially in treatment and perhaps for the duration of a short-term treatment episode let's say that it's about a month long or six weeks long you know they can abstain for a period of time because they are fearful uh, shame-faced and guilt-ridden uh, upon discovery and it's it's very common for um, or used to be at least I'm not sure how much this still happens in programs for subject of treatment to enter into so-called honesty agreements that would allow for you know a provider psychotherapist or a psychiatrist to communicate with an impacted other let's say a, a spouse of a subject in the event of a what in dependency or addiction circles would be called a slip or a relapse in behavior and the only reason you do this or know about this in, in in treatment as if the patient were reporting this. So that is has at least in the past and at times been very popular with impacted partners because they want the you know the, the the mandate is to arrest the behavior, stop the problem in its material behavioral form. Well, the problem, of course, of that is that it, it uh, is contaminates the confidential uh, relationship with you know, between the patient and provider, and you wonder, you know, how long can that kind of arrangement last? Well, 
they tend to last about as long as short-term treatment programs last, which is not that long. Um, otherwise, short-term uh, models uh, present something of an irony, in my, my view, to the consumer of services. They bring urgency, of course, which is, is welcome. And they attend to a need for what in addiction circles is, is dubbed immediate gratification, making everyone feel a little bit better, right, that the problem is going to be attended to. Except the irony here is that immediate gratification is, is, is presented as a pathology in addiction circles. It is um, an indicator of our rush to uh, evacuate bring an end to uncertainty, which is what we think addiction is at least partly about. Um, so sometimes the solution and the problem can appear to be the same. But if slower, then why psychoanalysis? What, what becomes an argument for a slower uh, in-depth treatment? Well, among other things, and again, I'll background by saying that I've worked in in a, the field of addictions in a variety of contexts. Originally, in the 90s, I worked in hospital-based uh, programs and chemical dependency programs. And I recall actually conversations with more than one administrator who would, um, you know, report statistics loosely culled from somewhere, uh, arguing, ever advocating for treatment and, and saying things like that the average uh, recovering person or treatment-seeking person uh, seeks about three or four different separate discrete treatment episodes before they achieve lasting uh, sobriety in the event of drug dependency or abstaining from problem behaviors. And this sort of fits with a common belief or a stereotype about, you know, addicts that they have problems that persist over time, perhaps even a lifetime. So it sort of begs the question, if addiction, if slipping and relapse is repetitive, and as is the treatment repetitive, and if 12-step community, Alcoholics Anonymous, etc., say that the problem of addiction or dependency, the, the, the medical you know, idea of, of addiction, medicalized idea, is chronic and progressive, then instead of, quote, keep coming back in a back-and-forth sense, you know, entering in, leaving, going out there, as they say, you know, slipping, relapsing, and then coming back, why not stick around, bring some continuity, uh, enduring uh, commitment to the problem, and indeed, um, upon, say, arresting behavior, go in depth, try to understand as fully as possible what the behavior is about. And understanding is what psychoanalysis is about. Um, you know, with respect to sex addicts, basically, why not commit? Particularly as we think failing to commit is basically what's uh, the problem of a sex addict may be. Um, further arguments um, against uh, psychoanalysis or you know similar arguments are that it's not immediate enough, that psychoanalysts in general are not directive. They don't give advice particularly. Don't, we don't give homework or operate out of workbooks. We're not attending to what is already uh, known or readily 
uh, known very often. It's a process, and we think a gradual process of stirring uh, thinking and feeling. And that's sort of not good enough for you know anyone who wants to arrest a problem, of course, as, as, as quickly as possible, uh, to which I'd say I basically understand that. Um, a second complaint is that um, not quite as as often expressed is that psychoanalysis actually fosters dependency, a different kind of substitute dependency. Um, over time, I've noticed that addiction specialists, recovering addicts, they tend to have in common is a wariness of a so-called substitute addictions. And they think that people can become addicted to more or less anything, including relationships. It's an aspect of what um, is called codependency, which is a term that is a little bit older than the term sex addiction, also a little bit more than 40 years old or thereabouts. Um, though they, meaning addiction specialists and recovering, recovering addicts, tend to exempt uh, from this um, skepticism those who uh, slavishly attend 12-step meetings over, over time or even over a lifetime because in, in that situation, you know, what, what a member of a 12-step community is doing is committing to a community, which is different than getting caught up, I suppose, in an um, individual relationship that could become, uh, you know, excessively dependent. Uh, I find, if, if you can't tell by, you know, the way I'm talking about this, uh, just to be something of a dubious, uh, you know, argument particularly if it's aimed at individuals like sex addicts, don't we basically want them to learn and practice uh, commitment, even if it is to an individual or a process with an individual? So the treatment method, uh, to speak in broadly, and then I will uh, finish this podcast today with a Something of a case illustration. I suppose these conversations will uh, bring something of a case illustration to kind of give the listener something they can, uh, you know, conjure. But the treatment method is to create conditions for depth and intensity. Now, just coming back to something I was saying earlier, that means basically confidentiality and that's something of a controversial area i'll touch on more on that with in future podcasts it's not as simple as you might think um, because there's lots of reasons why various people want to get in the room and hear uh, so to speak and hear what the addict is saying you know the so-called systemic approach is um, employed to justify a lot of limits to confidentiality. Well, limits to confidentiality, particularly those that are beyond the strictly legal limits to confidentiality, uh, creates a problem. Why should you, as a subject of treatment, uh, share your very personal information if it's going to be uh, reported on? Uh, next, intensity. Now, that's partly a reference to frequency. And again, commitment in psychoanalysis, you're asked to uh, do multiple meetings a week is, is very common. And to do so for an indefinite period, not just a short period like a month or six weeks, it's open-ended. And I think that idea, again, which you know sort of threatens dependency, but relational dependency, not the kind of dependency that is um, 
you know, supposedly the stuff of addiction is is threatening, but we think in a way that is ultimately uh, therapeutic because essentially the longer cue you commit to a therapeutic process with more intensity, more frequency, the less likely that you're going to hide yourself over time. The role of the analyst is, you know, there's necessarily some jargon I'm going to uh, utilize in, in these uh, podcasts. One, and one, some of the jargon includes terms like projection and transference. Uh, projections are the ideas, thoughts, feelings that are assigned to others. Sometimes we're conscious of these, sometimes we're not conscious of these projections at all. What do I think you're thinking? What do I think is in your mind? And how is all of that influencing what I'm going to share with you or what I'm not going to share with you? We call these projections. Uh, the role of the analyst is to try and help the patient understand them, to absorb uh, some of the intensity of the feeling um, that is being exhibited by the patient. And this leads to um, referencing another acting out term that's actually quite commonly understood or known, at least. It's the term acting out. It's often used in sex addiction treatment circles to denote specifically uh, sexual misconduct. And I don't mean here necessarily non-consensual behavior, but, you know, just porn use, affair-seeking, prostitute-seeking, maybe the, the three top no-nos, uh, you know, that are included under the heading of sex addiction. That's commonly what is meant by the term acting out. That's not what it was originally meant by the term. It's actually a term um, derivative of psychoanalysis. Again, um, it's a term that comes from a 1914 Sigmund Freud paper entitled Remembering, Repeating, and Working Through. His baseline idea that he expressed in this paper was that human beings, patients, uh, do not so much remember and become available to, to speak of, of difficulties as much as they act upon them. We don't remember and we can't articulate, but we can act upon that which is unconscious. And the shorthand for this is the idea of acting out. So acting out is putting into behavior a thought and memory. It's a 100-year-old idea. And very central to the uh, to psychoanalysis and, of course, the treatment of addictions in general. So an analyst is someone who is addressing, you know, relational distortions like projections, uh, observing challenging acting out behaviors, addressing and interpreting defensive behavior in general. So let me go ahead and give a commonplace example with a patient that I'll call Brian. You know, everyone's going to have a pseudonym in, in this. And Brian is a guy who has a routine. He has some addictions. I'll go into details on them. But he has his routines, and his routines as well as his addiction routines. But his, he has healthy routines to go alongside his addictive ones. Healthy routines, work, 
exercise, hobbies that are not shameful to him or anyone else. He has his routines and they feel good. Uh, but every once in a while, these routines get disrupted for you know, one reason or another. And when this occurs, he feels anxious. Now, this next point is crucial. He doesn't notice that he feels anxious. He doesn't say, my routine is disrupted and I became anxious and I felt that feeling in, for X you know, amount of time. Uh, what Brian does do instead is notice an urge uh, that comes up to go act out in the specific way that he does. And that is very commonplace of you know, addicts. They don't notice feelings, but they notice urges, they notice cravings, and they notice uh, thoughts that are uh, preliminary uh, to the defense. They notice the defense, not the feeling that they're defending against. It's a crucial idea in both psychoanalysis and the bridge between psychoanalysis and the treatment of addictions. Routines, routines which can be healthy and, and unhealthy, uh, habits can be healthy and unhealthy, you know, they're, they are positive in the sense that they tend to be soothing. They are familiar. They feel safe. They are ultimately unsatisfying. But uh, usually in the immediate, uh, in the present, they tend to be if, if not satisfying, then soothing because they represent the known experience. And treatment ultimately is about heading towards unknown experiences. So that's about it for today. Again, there will be a further series in this podcast at some point. I'm going to include my co-author and colleague Joe Farley in these discussions. So I hope you've gotten a little bit out of this um, this next Uh, podcast presentation. Stay tuned for another one in the near future. And thank you very much for listening to me today. My name again is Graham Daniels, MFT. Um, Hope to talk with you again soon.